All right, so let me introduce Sarah <laughs> here on the fly. Uh, this is Sarah Waldorf, who started uh, working at Signum seven years ago, she tells me, uh, and started taking classes uh, here and there, whatever interested her, uh, and then got about uh, halfway towards a master's degree, decided that uh, this was something she wanted to finish. So here she is now finished uh, as we present our uh, presentation. And let me say it's been... Um, I was very excited uh, to be asked uh, to do this. This is right up my alley. Uh, and it's been a real pleasure working with Sarah over the last years on the case study functions of the dative case in Beowulf. Uh, so with that really brief introduction, I think I'm going to just kind of cancel my screen. And Sarah, you, uh, you take over. All right. So hopefully everybody should be able to see the presentation there now. Yes. All right, good. So um, this kind of grew out of a question that I had during the, the Beowulf translation class that I took, and it was a question that there didn't seem to be an answer to. So uh, almost three years later, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I'm any closer necessarily to uh, finding an answer, but when you start exploring the question, sometimes the answer becomes something of a bonus. So. My project was on um, the functions of the dative case in Beowulf, and just for the purposes of this thesis, uh, we had to we had to just choose a segment, and so it's been restricted to lines 1439 to 2439. So the the dative case is one of the original eight um, known. Proto-European, pro-Indo-European noun cases. Um, originally, there was a nominative case, which was a subject case, evocative, which is the case of direct address, uh, the accusative was the direct object, um, the genitive was possessive, the dative could indicate the indirect object uh, or possession or the beneficiary of an action, the ablative case was the, the source or the place from which Instrumental case was the means, the accompaniment, the agency by which an action was done, and the locative was the place where. Um, and those are those are kind of simplifications of how the the case system functioned. But just in in general, those were those were the functions of the different cases. And then by the time of Old English, the noun cases had been reduced to four, with just remnants of a, of a fifth case. Um, so what remained was the nominative and the accusative, the genitive, and a dative slash instrumental case. The vocative case got folded in with the nominative, and uh, based all the other cases, the, the locative, the ablative, the, the instrumental, kind of all uh, went together with the, with the dative case. The instrumental case does remain here and there in Old English, um, just primarily in certain pronouns. And there are many uses of the of the dative case where you could say it has an instrumental function, but um, it's not separately identifiable. The the word forms are identical with the dative case. And so what you had uh, was one case form that had functions of these four different historical cases. So there was the, the functions of the of the original dative case, and that was 
that was an action performed to or, or towards someone. There was the functions of the instrumental case, um, the, the means by which or the manner, and the, the locative, which was the, the locating place, and, and the ablative. And uh, so what you've got is one case with multiple functions. Um, you can distinguish the functions still because, because you can tell from how we think the sentence should be translated that a case has a certain function, um, but there aren't any distinctive, distinctively written case endings anymore. So the result, or this was the result of case syncretism. As time went on, the, the endings to the different cases started sounding more and more alike, and eventually they simply became alike. And so um, things that originally had distinctive endings no longer had distinctive endings. If it was necessary to uh, distinguish a meaning that the ending used to show, they had to come up with other ways of doing that. So um, for the date of cases in Beowulf, as I said, I, I had a question in class. Uh, we were translating through the entire poem, um, the beginning at the beginning and going straight through. And uh, there came a point where just in the kind of total immersion of this, I suddenly said, I think, I think the poet is using the date of case differently now than, than a, you know, a few sections back. And there wasn't, there wasn't an answer for that question. There was no, you know, the, the instructor didn't know. Um, and I have not been able to find a lot of literature on the subject, at least not in English in the past uh, couple of years. It might be that there is something in German. I would, have, I would have enjoyed having the time to learn some German and be able to check that out. Um, I did find a master's thesis by uh, Louis G. Heller, uh, which he did for Columbia University back in, I think sometime in the 1950s, called the Data of an Instrumental Cases in Beowulf. And that was very useful because um, he cataloged um, the, the occurrences of the dative case and, and uh, organized them according to um, his categorization of them. The couple of problems with that was it was still, um, it was still incomplete. He would give line numbers where the dative would occur and not always, um, not always which actual word was the, the dative word in that line. And um, I think in, I, I looked over maybe 2,000 lines of the poem matching up with, with what Heller had found. And I think in those 2,000 lines, I, I came up with about 100 um, instances of the, the dative case that he did not have listed. And then um, another another problem with the with the way that he kind of had his categories organized was it was a, it was a hierarchical organization, which was kind of difficult to um, to work with or to really you know it it very well defined things down to you know down to a, a last degree, um, but it made too many separate kinds of of categories. So that you couldn't really compare uh, across, you know, from category to category, how often they they occurred. So, with that with that in mind, um, the the first the first step in doing this project was to figure out, you know, what it was that that we needed to do, and 
So I, I went went at it by identifying. Um, sorry, I should say the the question was, can we can we tell if there's a difference? Data on the different usages. And one thing that intrigued me while I was looking at this was uh, reading Michael Drought's um, Beowulf Unlocked, which identifies similarities between um, different Beowulf based on vocabulary. And it just it intrigues me that they might someday. Okay, can, can you hear me now? Yes, yes, we're good. You're back. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. So, whoops, I doesn't want to go back to where it was. Okay, I think it was in the middle of this slide here. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, you were talking about reading uh, droughts. Yeah. Beowulf unlock. Right. I think I'm going to stop with the webcam while I'm doing this presentation because it seems to be slowing things down.
Okay. Um, so yes, so Beowulf Unlocked um, identifies similarities and differences between segments based on vocabulary. And it just seemed to me interesting that, that the potential might be there to do the same with, um, with grammar. And in, in the Beowulf Unlocked, Drought, Drought identifies segment J, uh, which he, as he designates it. And that's a passage that has distinctively weak links to the material around it. And the thing that was really interesting to me was that was right near the point in the poem where I was starting to notice a difference in the, the data views. And, you know, I'm keeping in mind, I'm this very new um, reader of Old English, and there was something there that was noticeable even to a novice, just from the, just from the sheer stretch of, of translating through the entire poem, being, being immersed in it, and then suddenly starting to notice, um, you know, that there was there was something different in the in the style. So that kind of raises the question, you know, does it matter? Why is this why is this important? Is this just a a small thing to investigate? Well, if we can show patterns of distant different usages, it might have ramifications for date, um, for authorship for dialect, uh, anything like that. The same, the same types of things that have been done with vocabulary could be, could be approaches used on grammar. Um, and, and I just kind of got the idea of beginning on a, a database of the, of the data case uses in Beowulf to make that an available resource for people wanting to study those kinds of questions from the point of view of, of grammatical style or grammatical usage. So the, the focus for this project was 1,000 lines. That is uh, roughly not quite a third of the poem, um, but it, it covers the, the spot where I noticed the difference. Um, it goes five, 500 lines on either side of the change of scribal hands. And that was about that point was when I noticed. I wouldn't say that, that it started becoming different at the, at the point of the scribal change. Uh, exactly, but it was a convenient marker. And so this passage, this, this segment of a thousand lines, um, contains a few of the, of the notable passages in the poem. Um, it's got what's known as Hrothgar's sermon, um, Beowulf's uh, recapitulation speech about his journey and, and all his exploits when he, when he returns home. Um, it does include drought segment J, and so focusing on this 1,000 lines, I identified um, what shows up currently as 587 uses of the date of case. And to, uh, to arrive at that number, I counted um, only, only unique occurrences. So times where there was a, an adjective modifying a noun when both were in the dative, that was just counted as one times when um, there are several dative words that are that are all in apposition, all dependent on the same verb um, that I counted as as one occurrence. So, and, you know, governed by the same verb and all fulfilling the same function. So after identification, uh, then the next step was categorization. And for this, I just I have a spreadsheet. Um, it can 
could easily be imported into uh, some kind of database software if the, if the you know the right kind for the for the usage is found. Um, and you can kind of see that I had columns for um, including if there was a, a verb or an adjective that seemed to be significant in in whether or in why this uh, this particular noun was in the dative case and for including prepositions. And then I had a column uh, for the categories for the um, the uses that these that these data were fulfilling. And some of them were dependent on the verbs and some of them were um, were not. Some of them were just other other uses for the for the data. So the 22 categories that I came up with are listed here. Uh, there's there's no right or wrong. There, I've seen many different categories, sorry, categorizations. Um, sometimes they tend to be more and more detailed. Sometimes like colors, uh, and then there's some people that have tried to basically fit them to within three or so broad categories. And what I was after was categories that would be specific enough, but not too specific. So I wanted them to be able to, to express what function the data was fulfilling, um, especially if, if it would also kind of give you an idea which of the, which of the four historical cases uh, that function belonged to. But I didn't want to get uh, so detailed that we had no, um, we had a bunch of categories that had only one or two occurrences because it's hard to it's hard to make generalizations when everything is, is so very specific and detailed. So I'm not going to go into explanations of all, what all 22 categories are and how I arrived at them, but just for a couple of examples, uh, these were two of the most common. Um, the, the locative function uh, it was the mo probably the most common function of the of the dative case. So you can see right there that the the locative case combining with the with the dative case made huge changes in how the, in how the dative was used. Um, and when you think of of how you might translate the locative into modern English, you're you're usually translating it with the prepositions from or or to um, to as indicating direction. And then the the second largest category or one of the second largest I actually split into two categories um, because they are they are quite different they're data for different reasons so the uh, the use with verbs encompasses functions where the data is the direct object of the verb and where it's the indirect object and both of these translate fairly similarly into modern English um, with prepositions for or or to, and this kind of to is not a, is not a direction but an idea of reception. So you are giving something to someone. Um, and let's see. And the uses of the data with verbs are sometimes very. Um, Arbitrary. Sometimes these kind of seem to make sense based on what the verb is. The dative with the with the direct object is used when the verb grammatically requires a dative case, and that's often historically determined. Uh, sometimes sometimes no logic to it, um, although sometimes it does indicate a, a logical recipient of an action. 
verbs meaning give or take usually need a dative uh, direct object. Uh, the indirect object is um, kind of the, the function that's most closely linked with the historical Indo-European use of the, of the dative case. And it generally refers to the recipient um, of something else. So a noun gives another noun to a third noun, and the third noun would be the, the dative case as the indirect object, as in the islands gave tribute to the king. So with that kind of all uh, figured out, and, and it looks like it's tied up nice and neatly, but it doesn't, it's not quite as, as neat as fitting it into these nice little categories um, shows. But they had to go into some category. So um, then the next step was to, was to just run a bunch of formulas and come up with statistics on the, the use of the datives in these different sections of the poem. So I don't know, at last count I had on this, um, this page of the spreadsheet, I had at least a thousand formulas. And these are counting formulas, so they're not formulas that you can just do an automatic copy and paste and have it, have it fill in a whole, a whole row. But um, this is where things really started to get interesting because you could see um, differences, you know, slight differences often between uh, the, the overall totals, like I show here, and, and an individual segment. You could compare different sections. I kind of, I kind of took the sections as um, thematic, so they're not necessarily the same length or anything like that. But um, for, for example, using Hrothgar's sermon as, as one uh, section because that's likely to have been um, kind of you know written all with the same with the same theme and from the same viewpoint, and so it should have fairly similar uh, data uses within it. So what you what you see there is you see the the categories that I chose, and then this this slide shows the the total selection of how many how many occurrences of the data in each category, and then the percentage of the whole. Of those occurrences, and then in the the next light column, um, there's a particular segment that I've that I've singled out, and then you see the number of datives in each category in that segment, and then the percentage of the whole there. And uh, for the most part, um, there was a lot of uniformity, or in just a little variation between one and another, um, and that's you know that's fairly to be expected. It's when it's when there is something that's different. You know, it gets interesting and you kind of start to, to wonder why. Um, I also made formulas for counting uh, the datives used with prepositions versus the ones used without prepositions. And I didn't count whether a particular preposition occurred with any particular uh, category, although the, it could be done. I mean, there could be, there could be formulas modified to do that. But um, here you'll see the, the total number of datives with prepositions and then the percentages there are the percentages of uh, total dative usage within that category that use prepositions. So as you can see, the, the locative has a very high percentage of preposition use and some other ones have very low percentages. And again, that's, um, that's to be expected. There are some there are some uses of the dative that 
used prepositions far more far more regularly, and there were some that that did not. I mean, they there was no need for it in what it was attempting to express. Um, you will sometimes see that people will categorize uh, the data of uses and, and sometimes include a category for data with preposition. And I did not do that because um, usually even when there's a preposition, there is something else going on. There's uh, some reason for that data of case that it's not like it's caused by the preposition. Um, so there is there is some function that the data is fulfilling and the function may require a preposition most of the time. Um, it may not, or sometimes the preposition might be optional and that's where it can be interesting to compare the uses with the preposition or without. So I then made some, uh, some fun little diagrams, which kind of really helps to visualize how some of the different functions are used. And um, so you can see the, the one there on the left represents the, the entire selection of a thousand lines that I was working with. And um, the, the, you can see the locative takes up almost, almost a quarter of the entire uses. And then you can see on the right that that's uh, specifically Hrothgar's sermon. And you, there's a, a significant amount of difference in how the natives are used there versus overall. Now, this by itself is not, um, not really telling us a lot because uh, the entire selection you, you have to keep in mind is going to wind up kind of coming to an average. Um, there, it's going to it's going to include passages that that use the datives very far in one direction and passages that use them very far in another direction. But it is interesting to be able to see um, that that there is there is differences. I mean, there's there's uh, times when one use sees a lot more in a given passage than in another one. So um, this this diagram here is kind of representing the place where about where I thought I had noticed the difference in the data function when I was translating it the first time. So by the time I, I got into doing this whole project, um, finding an answer to the question of what was different kind of had become a bonus because uh, the focus kind of shifted more towards the, the study itself and gathering the information itself. But once I had the information, I was still curious. The question was still there. And so this is how it looked for, um, I, think I, I think I ran 50 lines um, on either side of the, of the scribal break just to, just to see if I could pin down what might have looked different to me. And as you can see, there is a lot of difference. <laughs> um, the, on the portion before, there's way more than the average amount of, of locatives and very little else, really. And um, in the 50 segments, just, just following the scribal break, there is uh, a lot more variety. And the way I would describe it is the dative had to do a lot more heavy lifting in that segment. 
it was being used for a lot of different functions and um, that does that shows up when you're when you're looking at it it's it's a lot more it's a lot harder to untangle what actually it's doing in each in each phrase because um, some of these are things where it's the dative case isn't helped much by by prepositions or other words in conveying the meaning it's the poem is relying a lot on simply the the grammar of the dative case to to convey meaning so I would say that this here is probably my, my answer to that question as I'm coasting along um, through a section where there is where there's a lot of very straightforward dative case uses and and predominantly locative and then you stumble into this where it's got all these colors on the wheel and and you know nothing nothing stays the same for very long it just seems you know seems all over the board as to what exactly is this form doing and so i i just uh kind of just the other day just for the just for the fun of it i also ran a uh, a percentage diagram on um on drought segment j versus uh, just a minute, I had something blocking my. Okay, go ahead. There we go. Uh, versus what had occurred previous to it in, in the selection that I was looking at. And um, and you can see differences there too. You can see that in the previous material, that there was a much more balanced use of the of the datives. Um, you'll see you'll see more colors there. Um, you'll see, you know, uh, pretty even segments except for the except for the three or so that are that are you know bigger than the other ones um, and then in the in the diagram on the left if you're going clockwise from 12 o'clock on it looks a lot the same until you get to about the seven o'clock point and then you can see a lot more unevenness and some you know some categories that are either larger or smaller than than the, the surrounding ones and and again this by itself is not conclusive because you're looking at a much smaller segment compared to a much larger segment and and um, things don't get ironed out as as much I mean you can have you can have a reason for why a certain use would be predominant in a small segment um, and it would it would seem to over really overpower the other uses but it is it is instructive that you can you can see this kind of thing and just and visualize and this is kind of what I'm hoping is you know is going to to be a kind of usage or sorry a kind of resource for um, people who want to want to take it a step further and start to really look at this and see what what can we really discover about the poem from this so just to show another kind of uh, possibility of visual representation um, you can. I did a, a couple of diagrams showing the datas with and without prepositions. This is the same two segments we were looking at in the last slide. So um, drought segment J, and 
the previous the previous lines uh, from line 14 37 or whatever I had there and so the the blue bars are the date of uses without the prepositions and then the purple added in is is the date of use with prepositions and you can see that in the uh, the larger segments you know more of the poem overall that the preposition use is slightly higher so again just another interesting way that we can we can use this kind of a tool to uh, to look at the data that we that we do have and that we can glean from the poem so this is this is the end of the presentation um, it's not the end of the project <laughs> as I said we had to we had to limit it to a thousand lines in scope so my my eventual goal is to identify and categorize the datives in the poem's entirety um, so I've completed roughly one-third of that almost not quite um, and my goal is to go on and to uh, and to finish the rest of it and then whether that's something that that I can proceed on and, and use to do any further studying of the grammar or whether it's a resource that other other scholars would like to use I would like to make it available um, and it, people can people can use that and apply that to the the study of the poem so uh, thank you um, I'm just happy that people came to, to hear this today and I guess uh, time for some questions now yeah we've got time so good um, so Joe says, uh, just, just comments that have been made uh, during your talk, Joe says your fans demand a scatter plot. So thanks, Joe. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, and I'm not really a statistics kind of person, so uh, the, you know, there, there's the information. If somebody can do that with it, that would be great. <laughs> uh, and Krita has three comments. She says, I love a good pie chart. Well done. Uh, and then in terms of uh, the chart showing the huge difference in the locatives in particular, she says, wow, what a difference. Uh, and then she just posted, well done, Sarah. Is there anywhere people can see your work and keep? Is that the full question? Oh. Keep up with this project. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and unmute everybody now uh, so that you can talk to Sarah directly. Maybe I'm going to. Yeah, there we go. All right. So I've unmuted everybody who's attending. Uh, so you should be able to talk to Sarah directly. So I will start the uh, the, the question war. <laughs> um, and just kind of, okay. So you addressed a little bit of why, uh, why this project. Uh, but I want to press you a little bit more is, is, you know, you had a question in class, but why why take that question about datives and counting datives uh, and categorizing datives into a big project? That's not your average English person's or literature person's thing to do. Yeah, I guess the the real answer has to be because it bugged me. Um, <laughs> I, I couldn't ever find an answer to it. I just I kind of had, was keeping my eyes open over a couple of years of you know studying just basically studying philology at Signum. And I couldn't find that anyone had addressed this aspect of the poem in such a way that would answer my question. So I, when it came time to really start thinking about what my thesis should be, um, 
there there was the question you know and since i since i hadn't been able to find an answer it just seemed like something that um would be worth working on because i already had the interest in it and so it's quite different from the traditional thesis which is usually this long long piece of writing um my my thesis you know en encompasses the spreadsheet obviously with all the information in and then i, I have an introduction that explains what it is and you know how I arrived at it. And um, to answer the, the question if it's going to be available any place, I, I believe that um, these things these theses get archived at Signum's library site. So I will be sending it there soon and then it should be it should be available at least to um, at least to Signum students and staff. All right. Uh, so, uh, open the floor for questions or observations from our audience. Uh, can y'all hear me? Yes. Okay. The, uh, I'm, yeah, I've never I've never tried this before. Okay. The uh, is there a way to categorize what the situation what what the what the particular piece of the verse is talking about? Because it seems like, you know, as you mentioned several times, that you know, if they're talking about something else, they're going to get different uh, frequencies. As in subject matter? Is that what you're, is what you're asking? Yeah. Like if, yeah. if you're, if you're swimming, swimming, swimming wearing chain mail, you're going to get one set of uh, sets. If, you, if you're like feasting in a hall, you're going to get another one, right? Exactly, and, and that's kind of kind of the point I'm making too with the with the dominance of the locatus is um, in that in that one passage is that if you are talking about um, things that occur in places or about moving from one place to another, um, that there's going to be a lot more occurrence of locatives than in something where you are you know you have someone just giving a, a speech talking about something philosophical. Yeah, they do they do kind of get a little philosophical sometimes. Um, so, and that's kind of why I, I, I get into segments based on the theme or the, or the topical segment of the poem, because then you can tell that from the, the narrative of that passage. Um, as far as your question about whether, whether it could be categorized, it probably could, it could probably mark, uh, the database in some way for, or whether this is this use is justified by the the narrative content of its of its spot in the poem. I don't know. Does that does that answer the question really? Yeah, I think so. I was I was I was wondering if there was anything quantitative, but I bet there's not. Uh, and Tim has asked. Uh, Sarah, did you notice any inconsistent usages? Any inconsistencies? I'm hearing a lot of background noise. Somebody typing or playing with spoons or something. <laughs> Just remember, you're all unmuted, so. <laughs> so. Anyway, yes. So, um, inconsistencies is what Tim wants to know about. Okay. Um. Inconsistencies, like, like any any can you can you add anything more to that? Inconsistencies as to what? And Tim, you can speak uh, if you have a microphone on your computer. So, oh, okay. Here, uh, 
question from someone else, but okay, it doesn't sound like or look like Tim is getting going to uh, respond. Uh, so Al, uh, Alexis asked, uh, you mentioned that there may be areas where you can actually see where different writers may have written down uh, sections over time. How did that change your study? Is the first question, and then does it go between two or more writers? Is the second question. Yeah, and and uh, the whole the whole concept of authorship in Beowulf has been such a hotly debated topic that I I don't think that I'm you know I've discovered the one key that's going to lay it all to rest or anything like that. Um, it's more just offering another tool for people to, uh, you know, use to study those kinds of questions. Um, my my own opinion after doing what I've done so far, I mean, this is this is just my opinion, is that um, the idea of a really composite authorship, like it was put together by a lot of different people over a long time, is is probably not um, probably not what happened. But there does seem to be some support for um, uh, a main author or or so that used material that was um, pre-existing in some way and kind of worked it into the poem. And um, some of the best places to look at that were not included in uh, the the selection that I that I studied. So that's one reason why I'm kind of excited to go on and and look at some other places because um, the the Finsburg fragment. Is, is one place that very, very easily looks like it could have been some kind of story that, you know, that was already known, um, you know, already told. And then you might expect to find some some differences if the, if the poet kind of just borrowed that, you know, he, he incorporated it, smoothed it out a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's as far as as far as uh, as far as authorship, I'm not going to really come out and say that I've discovered anything different or not because uh, that's that's asking too much. <laughs> All right, and Tim has come back, uh, and for uh, remember he asked about the inconsistencies, and he says, for instance, the same preposition but with other cases, or same case with differing prepositions but same meaning. Okay. Yes. Um, it would be very easy with the with the system that I've set up so far to check which uh, which prepositions are used, you know, with individual functions of the of the dative here. Um, in order to in order to check the preposition usage against um, different cases, then we'd need to catalog the different cases also, which. Uh, you know, which that could be something that's done at some point, but um, you know, so far I've been focusing just on the just on the dative case and prepositions. Um, there is there is a lot of fluidity to which prepositions get used with which case. I know some uh, some grammar and syntax works kind of try to clarify that a certain preposition. Is used with a certain case, but even they have to talk about exceptions, and uh, it kind of boils down to is there just was a lot of fluidity in language in general, in Old English in particular. It was a, a very um, a very kind of dynamic time period for a language to be, and, and it was 
it was in the process of changing. It was not um, not an entirely uh, analytical language, nor entirely synthetic language. It was it was in the process of going from a, you know a very um, very much case dependent to more of a word order dependent and you can see that there's both ones both both are present in old english they they have case which we don't have in our modern language but they also are quite dependent on word order more so than you see like in latin or in some other language that hasn't uh, that hasn't progressed quite that far progressed and <laughs> some people would say regressed or degressed but um so so yeah there's there there inconsistency would probably be more the norm than than the exception all right and tim also asks why another example a possessive dative why not use genitive good question <laughs> um they weren't very common the possess possessive datives um they weren't very common among the you know, total number of possessives and they weren't a very common use of the of the dative case and so there may have been certain historical circumstances that governed why those were used um you know there there is a little bit of a of a logic to it sometimes in context but but not not a ton <laughs> not, not that i could see yeah, I will. I will say that there are a couple of constructions that are almost always called for a, a possessive dative, such as the name, the name to me, rather than my name, or the name of me. Right, so that kind of construction. And there are that one, and uh, and there's one other typical construction that almost always calls for uh, possessive dative. And what's likely to happen when you see it in certain constructions like that is there was there was something historically that just kind of got frozen. Um, you know, we, we use terms nowadays that are that it would be strange in in our modern grammar. We don't think anything of them because we're, we're used to hearing it. Um, but it's just a kind of a carryover from a previous time when it when it was more common or it did actually have a reason. Uh, okay, and then Tim observes. Uh, okay, it's so it's often a matter of convention. I would I would say that's a pretty good a pretty good assessment. By by this time, you know, by this by this time period. Um, when you when you think about you think about convention, you can think about modern English. Uh, one of the you know one of the modern English phrases that the, the dative case would have evolved into is, um, is, you know, I'm going, I'm going to give the book to John. And you see, we need a preposition there. We need the preposition to, uh, and we don't say I'm going to give the book John, but we can say I'm going to give John the book without a preposition. Both are perfectly grammatical, both sound just fine. Both mean exactly the same thing. Um, you know, but, why do we why do we need a preposition with one word order and, and not the other it's it's just you know it's just the way it is the way it's become in the language any other questions or observations
Okay. Uh oh. Uh. <laughs> Tim says it's the great green dragon problem. <laughs> Something like that. Right, well, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, your definition of categories and how you came up with those uh, and where you uh, disagreed with uh, Heller's work and, and how you think you've improved on that? Yeah, well, the, the categories, um, interestingly enough, didn't really get set until kind of later in the project. So um, I knew I wanted categories that were neither too broad nor too narrow, which is probably the point where I most um, most disagreed with with other people's because they either seem to be trying to um, trying to find you know some very, some general generalities with categories or to break them down to the smallest possible you know difference and and lump them that way. For example, in um, in Heller's uh, uh, categorization, he would he would note a difference between a, a locative use of a physical place or a locative use of a non-physical place where you might you know you might say in my feelings or you know um, in my in my in my heart and that was not going to be terribly useful for this kind of um, this kind of categorization but I I went through the the poem and you know I identified the the uses of the dative first and then went over those and kind of let let them tell me themselves what what their categories were because when you try to translate it you know look at it in context and see what function is this actually uh, fulfilling um, and then and then put a name to it and as I went on I you know I saw that some of the some of the names I was putting to it kind of belong together you know and and, and those got combined into categories like um, Oh, like for the for the locative category, I didn't. I originally had a difference between um, a, a locative where something is in place and something is moving to a place. Um, but I, you know, eventually I just I just put them together because really, when you when you think about it, it's not a significant difference when you're comparing it to a possessive use of the dative. I mean, they're, they're all they're all locatives. They all have to do with place and they're referring to place. So um, that's you know that's pretty much how how I came up with it was just what you know what am I finding in this in this selection of the poem how are these words being used and then to kind of refine it a little bit so that I so that I was grouping some like things together um, and there were some things that are completely standalone uh, like the the date of use with the inflected infinitive is you know not really like any of the other ones. Um, I think I remember being kind of mad to discover a couple data of, of agency in there because I really you know, felt like I was getting enough categories and, and didn't want to didn't want to add something else, but it it just didn't it seemed to be forcing the issue to make it fit into one of the others. So you know then then you give it its own category, and that's pretty much how I pretty much how I went at it. Okay, and, and Tim also asked, you may have already mentioned this, uh, I tuned in late, but did you use a particular source for the categories? Um, I looked at a, a number of different scholars' works. I, I had mentioned that I found a, um, 
master's thesis by Lewis G. Heller from Columbia University, where he had gone through and he had he had categorized and subcategorized and you know sub subcategorized. It was this it was this you know A B Roman numeral one small Roman numeral you know kind of kind of system. Um, so I I did I did look at I did look at how he used it. I you know I, I read um, a number of grammar works uh, like like Bruce Mitchell and like um, Quirk and Wren and some other some other works and just kind of just kind of looked at how they did it and then uh, applied those to the actual the occurrences in the poem and to see what to see what would fit more or less fit with fit with how this particular author was was using them so there were some categories that I didn't need because they never they never cropped up or um, that just seemed to be kind of uh, an attempt to over define uh, what was going on all right uh, Karita asks are there any bunny trails or lines of questions uh, that you really wanted to go down but needed to set aside to keep your focus clean and concise um, I was so focused that it um, it was kind of yeah it was kind of hard to even to even think about anything else. There's the the question that tends to keep on derailing you when you're studying something like this in Beowulf is to try you know keep trying to apply it before you're ready, um, especially as as regards things like date and authorship because they are such hot topics, and uh, you know so you're you're collecting this information and you do find yourself wanting to wanting to just sort of explore if, if what you have so far you know fits in with anything in particular but it's it really is insufficient um information to do it with from that from that perspective so i would i would say those were kind of the the primary bunny trails just the basic the basic beowulf bunny trails that every study of beowulf seems you know liable to slide into Okay, Tim says, uh, inflected languages are children of Cain up from the swamp. <laughs> All too true, I'm afraid. All right. Uh, well, let me ask then, um, um, were there things, well, Let's go back a little bit. Um, this is, of course, going to be a preliminary question. And one of the things you said in your talk uh, was that doing a project like this uh, and, and gathering this information could tell us something about date or about authorship um, and, and those kinds of things. So based on what you've done so far, right? So, that, of course, this is a preliminary conclusion. Uh, but what would you say about the date of Beowulf based on, on this? Um, I would say that it's we're probably probably never going to know. <laughs> um, <laughs> the everything everything that I I read on you know the question of dating Old English by grammatical um, grammatical means basically said poetry is a whole different field. I mean they they were all based on prose. Um, there was a a study on preposition usages by, um, I think his name was Kuro Sato, 
And Ashley Crandall Amos has, of course, has a, a work on um, linguistic means for determining dates in Old English prose, I think is the, is the title. And um, poetry just winds up being a different, a different baby for several reasons. One is that, um, is that it tends to be more archaic just in general. The, you know, the language, we, we see that, we see that ourselves uh, when people write anything first of all they are probably writing a more a more uh, standard or a more um formal language than they speak and then if they if they go to write poetry it's it's different again and then um old english poetry was also highly formulaic where um there was a lot of rules governing how they how they could place their their phrases and you know even their words, and so um, it's we don't really have the information to to judge whether there was a lot of change in that from you know from early Old English to late Old English, uh, and even if even if we did do you know do we know was it stylistic on the part of the author was it you know was it a conscious choice or was it actually reflecting changes in the language by that time. So uh, yeah, not going out on any on any limbs for that one. All right. Um, and Tim asks, uh, totally off topic. Has anyone tried a carbon fourteen dating of the manuscript? Um, and I can answer that unless you want to. I, I don't. I don't know. I'd okay. be glad. Yeah. To. Nobody has has done that. Um, we date the manuscript based on the the paleography the letter shapes and the and the script of the manuscript um and so beowulf uh is sometime between we usually give it in in terms of uh 50 year uh units uh and, and then usually kind of go in the middle of, of that 50 year unit unless there's something within the manuscript that can give us a specific date um or or you know at least a more something narrower but the beowulf manuscript then we say is is written between 975 uh, and 1025, so that 50-year period, and so we say usually circa 1,000. Um, but that, and go ahead. The date when the manuscript is written um, gives you an ending date for when the poem was written, but it doesn't tell you. You know, they, they could have been they could have been copying something or writing something down that had been that had been composed long before as well. So I think they're, they're fairly sure about the about the date of the manuscript. But um, it doesn't it doesn't help much since there is only one manuscript or two. It doesn't help much with um, with dating the poem itself. Right, and there's been quite a lot of debate as to how how much of this is an oral tradition being written down later, or copy you know was copied down already and then the scribes copied it, and how much of it was original composition. Um, so there you have it. <laughs> At least the short answer. <laughs> I, I lean I lean towards that the, the scribes were copying something that was written already. Um, I don't think there's there's sufficient evidence that you know there's there's two scribes. I don't think there's sufficient evidence that they were both composing something on out of each one's own head. So that does kind of point to point to copying something that was already written. Um, but you know as to when it was written. Um, I, I like I like earlier dates for things anyway, just because um, I feel like sometimes people try to date things later 
out of a, out of a feeling that somehow the earlier people were inferior and couldn't have produced something <laughs> um, of that magnitude, and that I don't consider that to be a, a good reason. Um, and even even the idea of, of oral transmission, if if you're an oral society, oral transmission is not the the kind of the telephone game that we that we think of it nowadays. I mean, when if we try to transmit something orally in, in our society, it's going to get very garbled. Um, in a society that, that lived off of this, their, their standard for repeating things, you know, closer to the same way every time was, was much higher. Their memories were, were trained to do this, you know, just because something may have existed orally for a long time doesn't mean that, um, that it was changing every time someone told it either. Right. Uh, and Tim observes, uh, I have the feeling proposing a carbon-14 dating would horrify every manuscript librarian, librarian who ever lived. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some truth to that. And the Beowulf manuscript uh, in particular has been through two fires uh, and some other things that early librarians did to it. Uh, mm -hmm. So probably taking taking additional slices out is uh, is probably not something they would do unless there was an extreme need. All right, any other questions, observations, debates, problems, celebrations? All right, well, thank you, everybody, for attending and for, for the questions that you've asked, and thank you, Sarah. Uh, well done, and uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. So I'm going to go ahead and close it out. Thank you, folks. All right, thank you.